Welcome to the second part of the Best of Bucket with Phil Cogan podcast. Over the past year, Bucket has been a place for mavericks, innovators, and disruptors. Those who have swerved off the predictable road and who epitomize what it means to tick it before you kick it. In this episode, we will be taking a look back at those who have turned obstacles into opportunities, defied insurmountable odds, broken stereotypes, achieved seemingly impossible physical feats, and even cheated death. We're also gonna hear some words of wisdom as well as their tips for taking life by the horns and applying that bucket mentality to any situation. I knew I couldn't go back. Changes your you just put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to just dug even deeper. Luck is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I could not. That was the turning point. Susan Zerinsky, or Z as she's affectionately known, is a living legend and a world-class storyteller. Someone who has craved to be at the front lines her entire life, or as long as she can remember. Even in college, while classmates were out drinking and partying, Susan always preferred to be chasing a story. I had no idea. You, you did say that uh, a good story is is like good sex. Oh yeah, so, well it but is. I, I presume I mean, it was, if you weren't dating, you thought the stories were better than the sex. Well, I, I definitely. <laughs> I mean, anybody could like get drunk and you know have a have a thing. I but. I got to stake out Attorney General John Mitchell in the back of the Jefferson Hotel. While your friends were drinking. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I was living, I mean, I was so weird. I was living in the dorms. I mean, I wasn't even not, I was living in the dorms. So it was incredibly exciting. I mean, my assignment editor, the assignment editor during the week, um, really uh, thought that we could find Deep Throat. Mm. So I think I went to every garage in a 50 mile radius of Washington, Virginia, and Maryland with a camera crew <laughs> who said to me, you've either pissed somebody off or you're so hungry, you'll do anything to get noticed. I got so entrenched and I don't know, it was so, it was seductive because it was so important. And journalism at that moment was literally holding a White House accountable, a Congress accountable. When you feel the empowerment of something like journalism back in the 70s, it, it really changed my course because it was filmic, it was important. And I, I said, to, I called my dad one night and I said, I know what I wanna do, I, I wanna do this, I wanna be a producer. Because you also had the dynamic impact of, of stories that were so visual and could really have a, a dynamic impact. Plus, I loved being in the, in, just in the hot spot of news. Susan has been in the heart of many dangerous situations all over the globe, all with the mission to cover the story. Her office is almost like a pop-up book of her life with every surface covered with some piece of memorabilia. After decades of covering stories that took her to almost every remote place on earth, Susan was suddenly faced with the biggest story of her career, and it was only 30 blocks away, the most devastating attack in American history. I felt like I had trained my whole life, I've said this, my whole life to cover 9-11. In what and way? Because I always got on an airplane. Home was the safe place. You know, we were kind of... I don't know. We were we were in the safety zone. It didn't happen here. It proved a vulnerability that you reported on all over the world. 
we're not vulnerable, we're the United States of America. It's like when I went into Russia and I'm in Moscow and I wrote back, I've seen the enemy, we should not be afraid. Right. Um, you know, it's just, it was, it was so stark. It was such a wake up call. After 9-11, Susan's desire to be at the front lines continued, even though that meant sometimes having to take risks, something that she actually craves. What I love about you, uh, Susan, and, and I think everybody admires about you is that you are this passionate storyteller who loves to take risks. You, you like, you like uh, when, it, when you're a little scared uh, about telling a story. And I live in scared. You live in scared. I, yes. Fear, yeah, can you explain fear. what you mean when you say you live in scared? I, I don't think there's a single day that I wake up that terrified is not in my first six words. And I get up very early because I like to work out early because you never know what the day is going to bring. I, I just, I think I live on the edge of fear because I'm never quite sure I have it. I'm never quite sure it's going to work. I'm never quite sure of my own intellect. I'm never quite sure of the people who I have to convince to play with us and talk to us. But I think I, I you know, at this stage, and I'll, I'll not, my age is pretty well out there, but let's just say I'm one of five people still on the old pension program at CBS, <laughs> which qualifies me as really old. Um, but I, but nobody's told my brain that. So um, I think living on the edge of fear is my motivator, but it was born of insecurity and now I just don't let it go. I'm never that person who thinks they're the smartest person in the room. And I never am the person that thinks I've got it all. So I'm open to a lot of different paths in because I think you're in anything you do and especially in television and especially in journalism, you're better for taking in and then processing and putting it back out. Susan is showing no signs of slowing down and has all the energy, passion and excitement for journalism that she's had since she started in the newsroom at 19 years old. Mariana Vanzella is another journalist who's just not afraid of putting her life on the line for a good story. For the past 15 years, Mariana has traveled around the world, finding herself in the middle of dangerous situations one after the other. Mariana believes that empathy and being impartial is important when it comes to journalism. She strives to tell all sides of the story, relying on sheer optimism, patience, full immersion, and hanging around just long enough for the story to unfold. I'll tell you the story of the Nigerian uh, militants that was very interesting. So we were in the Niger Delta in Nigeria doing a story about the oil conflict there. And uh, there's this group of militants called MEND, that's their group, and they were at the time, you know, be protesting the ex exploitation of oil in this, their region and how all the money from the oil um, industry was not, was leaving the country and not staying. Um, and in order sort of to uh, call attention for their fight uh, and their struggle, they started kidnapping oil workers, mm. so foreign oil workers that were living in Nigeria. And they were stealing oil from the pipes and doing all sorts of um, operations in the Niger Delta. So we spent, um, I, again, my husband and I spent about two weeks there. And the goal was always to actually go and meet the militants. Uh, we wanted to see what they had to say, why they were doing this, and hear their side. Um, and uh, it always happens with journalists, and that's why it's important to stay optimistic, is that it, the access usually happens within the last sort of 
day or hour that you're there and it's when you're almost you've almost given up and you're like okay this is never going to happen i'm tired i just want to go home but if you persist just a little bit longer persistence is another of my keywords it, it is guaranteed, it's almost always guaranteed to happen. And this was one of those cases where all these doors that we were promised had been shut closed. Everybody had told us that there's no way they're, um, they're doing their operations right now. They're too busy or they're too scared to meet with the media right now or it's not in their interest. It's never going to happen. And then I think it was like the last day that we were there. We heard that uh, somebody was able to contact some of them and they agreed to meet us. And, but the thing was that we would have to get in this car and because we weren't supposed to know where the location was. So we'd get into this car and this driver that I guess uh, worked with them would take us to this place. And it was maybe an hour, maybe a two hour drive. We weren't sure, but this, it was gonna take us to this place. And then there we would meet uh, the militants, but nothing else was told. And then that this driver would take, bring us back home, which is the only thing, oh, he's, is he gonna bring us back to our hotel? And they said, yes. It's such a huge risk. Though. It is a huge risk. It is a huge risk, but we, we had gotten in touch with this through a Nigerian journalist that had been in touch with MEND, with this group for many years. And, uh, and we trusted, um, in this case, with our lives, trusted this person with our lives. And she, she, she was an amazing, very critically acclaimed uh, Nigerian journalist. And, um, and she told us, it's, it's okay. if they said it's okay, it's okay. If they said they want to meet you, um, it's not in their interest to kidnap you or do any or harm you in any way. They want to tell and share their stories. So we got Darren and I got in the car with our little camera, and it was just the two of us. For years we worked; it was just the two of us. He'd be the producer and camera person. Is this a great way film. to fall in love? By the way, <laughs> it was amazing. You have no idea the adventures we had. Yeah. I mean, the diseases. I I flesh-eating parasite in the Amazon. I got a weird bug in this trip in Nigeria that my whole body was covered in hives, and he had to take me to a local hospital and. All sorts so of adventures. He's seen you at your best and he's your worst. He's seen me at my best and and he still loves me. <laughs> That's real love. So I always said that I travel not only with the person, you know, the camera guy, the director, producer, but also my personal bodyguard. I mean, okay, who yeah. I know would do anything for He'd me. Take right? a bullet for you if he had to. <laughs> exactly. He's going to be there for you. So I'm incredibly lucky. Yeah. So we get into this car, we travel for like an hour or so, and then we get to this, and we're in the middle of the nowhere, and we're traveling into this sort of. Uh, green area with no houses or nothing around it and we go into this basically we stop the car in this uh, little port area so there's all these sort of canals and swamps the Nigerian swamps and there was this little tiny port and we get there and Darren's we're still in the car Darren's getting his gear together I'm getting my stuff together and suddenly we hear a little knock on the window and it's this like eight-year-old nine-year-old kid and we roll down the window and he says, I think it was Oyibo, how they say white person. Mm. Um, I think that was the word if, in, a, in a Nigerian. Um, hey, white person, um, the people you're looking for are over there. So just go over there. So we get out of the car and we sort of follow this kid. And still Darren is sort of fixing his gear and looking down. I'm doing something and also looking down and suddenly I look up and there it is, the little port area, which is basically just a couple of wood planks out into the, the swamps. And I look up and I see nine or 10 uh, guys, all, most of them like in their early 20s, 19, 20 year olds, with holding AK-47s and uh, waiting for us. And with these like masks and uh, covered, their heads covered and just waiting for us. And I look up and it's, Darren, holy shit, <laughs> look, look, 
Did he look? Look what's look, ahead of us here. Look ahead of us. Keep walking. Keep walking. Ahead. And he does, and he was like, "Holy shit! Let's keep it cool." So we walk up there, and we we introduce ourselves very politely. We, you know, it's always important to keep very calm. We can start you know, getting nervous there is not going to solve anything. So very calmly, and we explained we're journalists, we're here to talk to you guys, we want to figure out why you didn't tell your story, all that stuff. And uh, they said, okay, we're going to take you to our base. So they get us in a boat, and immediately there, they have uh, whiskey in the boat, and they start drinking whiskey, and asking us if we want to drink some of their whiskey. I think we actually took a couple of sips as well. Just to simulate. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's it's very important gesture. to show that we're not, you know, we're not hey, above we're anyone good. here. We're do So, yeah, it's important to eat and do as they do, and yes. do as they tell you, and as they ask you, and be polite. And yeah, and we get into the boat, and then he drives us up to the camp, and at this point, you know, adrenaline, I'm very excited, because I'm not only because this is a crazy situation, but also this is what you an thrive experience. for, right? Yes. I mean, this is what you it's want. A, it's an amazing. You're experience. heading to the meat of the story. Yes, and yeah. because I know that I'm finally going to be able to tell the story that I wanted to tell. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so we get to the camp, to the base, and their general shoot at sight. That's his uh, nom de guerre. Is waiting for us at the camp base. And uh, he's got his like wife, white wife beater on, and uh, something around his head as well. And he's holding his own AK-47. And, and how old is he? He's in his 40s. Okay. And uh, and we get there, and he says, "Oh, he looks, takes one look at me, and I, oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, we allow the man to go into the camp, but there's no way you can come into the camp because that's bad juju. That's like bad luck." Um, and a woman, if you step on this camp, then that's the end of our activities here because we'll be blessed or there'll be bad luck for the rest of our lives, um, which was awful. <laughs> so, yeah. Here I am, traveled all this way, yeah. and now Darren's going to be able to see it, and I'm not. <laughs> it's going to break me. But, uh, and but you said, so, I used to be a man, and I really still am a man. I'm disguised <laughs> oh, as a I woman. Oh, I said, guess who wears the pants in the house? It's oh, not Oh, yeah, right, it's me, okay. <laughs> no, so they allowed Darren to go into the camp, but then we were able to convince them to uh, go out on the boats they had. And they oh, also okay. wanted to show their arsenal, so they came out with all their weapons, and there are several speedboats, and we did the interview with General Shudat Sight with all his speedboats going around us in circles just to sort of show their He wanted to show his mic. Power, exactly. Yeah. Um, boots on the ground journalism is something that has been a little bit lost in the past few years. Why do you years. think that is? Because it's cheaper to make studio television, right. essentially. And because, uh, you know, when you just have to get two people to disagree on something, mm -hmm. and that makes great TV. Ratings. Great yeah. TV, people like that, you know? Yeah. Um, but you know, I truly believe that uh, real journalism is, uh, you know, not only the people that make phone calls and have a long list of people that they're calling and in, in investigating, but um, but also boots on the ground, actually going there and hitting the, the, the field and uh, spending time there. Something that I always say to people is that luck is the residue of design. Mariana's positivity and, and the belief that things will go her way has allowed her to get past roadblocks and continue moving forward when others might just give up just like comedian, husband, and father of three, David Downs. After defeating cancer, not once, but twice, he was then given news that turned his life upside down once again. I want to start the whole story, November 7, 2017. Okay. So not that long ago. Yeah, so what happened then? So that was the day, that wasn't a very good day. Um, that was the day that I found out that my cancer had come back for, I think, the third time that time. So the doctor called me up. I'd done a PET scan like the day before 
And I kind of knew that, you know, if the doctor calls, it's not a good thing. You know, you don't want the doctor to be calling. So she called me up and, it was, and I'd already said to her, you know, please just tell me, don't wait and sugarcoat it. So she said, no, the cancer's come back again. And, uh, well, that was, a bad, that was a bad news day. Yeah. Yeah, that was a tough day because she said, basically, statistically, you've got less than a year to live. And I was like, oh, okay. I was like, hmm. Okay. Now, had you been told that throughout the year at various times? I've been told that the, the, the odds of success were getting less every time that I talked to them, you know. So it started out, you know, 60, 80%. Yeah, we got 80% success rate and then it went down and then it went down and down. This was, by this time, it was like down to 6%, you know, chance of success and, you know, a year or less to live. So that was pretty sobering. The cancer had spread through David's entire body and he was in disbelief it's a problem because we said why can't you just cut it out and the fit well the first thing was it's a lymphoma which is a blood cancer oh. so it's like leukemia but it's a white blood cancer so they said well first of all even if we could cut it out that would be no good because it's all through you the cancer's like in your blood so it's everywhere and this is just one lymph node that's just gone crazy um and it's growing all around the bits of you that are fairly important if you want to stay alive so so wow this all happened as i say like in you know a day this is something you think other people get yeah, this yeah. is not something you think is coming your I way. I think it's human nature to assume that every, that you're different than everyone else and everyone else lives by a different set of rules. I mean, right. that's just kind of, I think that's how we protect our kind of identity. So right. I was always of the opinion that, yeah, other people get sick and that's really sad. And, and that's really sad. Them. Yeah, yeah, but not me. I won't get sick. And then when you do get sick, it's like, well, sure, other people die from this, but not me because I'm special. And so you've got to... That's quite a hard thing to get used to. And, and the doctor was kind of coaching me a few times saying, David, you've got to entertain the possibility that this might not end well. But that's the catch with cancer. It doesn't discriminate. Ethan Zahn, survivor winner and nonprofit CEO, who has also experienced the harsh realities of cancer, says this. Cancer doesn't care who you are, how much money you make if you've suffered before. Right. That's the, right? That's the whole thing. Yeah. When you hear those words, you have cancer, we're all the same. As David continued chemotherapy, he began to feel as if the treatment was slowly eating him alive. But he knew he needed to stay positive and optimistic, not just for himself, but for his wife and kids. So uh, your wife, obviously she's older, she can yeah. kind of deal with it, she has some perspective, but how do you, how do you share this with your kids? Yeah. Because they, they physically see you deteriorate. That's right, and they're three kids, they're basically three teenage boys. Um, they were incredible through the whole journey. We had made the decision really early on, and you know, it wasn't even necessarily conscious, because when I decided to write about it, we were saying, oh, well, they have to be quite public. And yeah. I said, I'm going to tell everyone everything, because, you know, why not? I want to learn about it. And so that meant the boys had to know about it too. And, that, and initially that was like, okay, it's kind of an adventure. Dad's going on a bit of an adventure. We're going to go and beat this cancer thing, and it's going to be, you know, it's going to take three to four months. That's what we first thought. Um, but as it got through there and it got worse and worse all the time, it got harder and harder on the kids. And they, they didn't like visiting me in hospital particularly because hospitals where it all comes crashing, the reality comes crashing into you. You know, yeah. you're in a bed and there's things coming out of you and there's and doctors. It, there's and there's a smell in hospitals. There's a smell. And there's a feel. But, but you, you did something to sort of help counter yeah. that whole sterile yeah. environment? Correct. Because I, I had to be in hospital for so many times for so many and weeks at a time. And um, it was actually Catherine, my wife's idea, and she said, well, we're actually going to make this more fun because for, not just for you, but for your visitors and for the boys. And so every time when I had to go to hospital, I pretended, pretended that um, instead of going to hospital, I was going on holiday. 
Hmm. And I oh, pick you a, might, did you go to some interesting places? I did. We Where did to, you go? First of all, we went to Fiji, one okay. of the Pacific Islands. And yeah. so we dressed up the room with palm trees and lava lavas and ukuleles and, and everything like that. And, pe- and all, my, all the visitors, I said, anyone can come visit, but you have to come in costume. And then we went to Ireland one year, went to Dublin, and we went to uh, Vietnam, uh, Paris. So all these different places. You really places. got around. Yeah. And it was really cool. And it, all the doctors and nurses really got into it because I'd make them. David started this blog to share his experience with battling cancer. These humorous and heartfelt updates caught the attention of a doctor who offered him a potentially life-saving experimental surgery that amazingly was for the exact type of cancer that he had. It would be a huge risk, but David was willing to do anything. But, but David, this is your... This is your immune this system. This is your working. last hope, though. This is like, it. Yeah, yeah. If this, this is, didn't work, if this doesn't work, yeah, it's hospice conversations. Yeah, the, whole, it's, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Tell you what happened. So I had to wait for like three weeks to see what happened in my body, and all the stuff is going on, and I'm and I'm I'm curious. Then I do a thing called a PET scan, which is like a like the atomic level scan of the body. I did that on the, like 29 days after the infusion, and I went in to see the doctor the next day <clears throat> to get the results. So it was a big. That was the big day. Like. This is it, you know. And I had Catherine on Skype because she was back in New Zealand. Uh, and the doctor, I had my friend Trevor there, and, um, and he, he just walked in the room. He's brilliant, this guy, Jeff. And he said, David, I'm just going to... He knows me quite well. David, I'm just going to talk so I can get a word in. Um, <laughs> your, it's the best possible scenario. There is no sign of cancer in your body. As far as we can see, you're in complete remission. And I was just like, wow, that... Really? And he said, yeah, complete remission. There's no sign of cancer. The T cells have completely worked, and it was like there was a lot of hollering and hugging and David, you're allowed <laughs> stuff to like you this. must have had a few tears. Yeah, we had a few tears. Yeah, and then and I was said, your doctor with you at the time? The, 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 no, the, Ka- Catherine then drove around to my doctor in New Zealand's house because she knew where she lived, like nearby, not in a stalky way, but you know, just in a lovey way, and um and told her, and it was it was a huge celebration. So I said to Jeff, my doctor in uh, Boston, I said, "Great, you know, it's worked. Wow, so what do I do now? Because after, when you're in hospital for a year, there's always a doctor telling you what to do next." I said, "What do I do next?" And he went, "I don't care. <laughs> so said, Get on with works. your life. Get on with your yeah, life. Just yeah, go yeah. live. Yeah, exactly. Do, That's exactly do, what just, he said. Do. Just go live. Exactly what he said." And we are happy to say that David is still in remission and living a wonderful full life. It's an incredible story of perseverance and positivity through extreme adversity. The human body is capable of doing extraordinary things, and we're still discovering what our full potential is. That's something that Phil McCarthy found out when he ran up to three marathons a day for more than 40 days. Just think about that. Coast to coast across America. He's like a real-life Forrest Gump who says that accomplishing such monumental physical feats it's not just all about endurance. I, I, I wanted to uh, start up with a, a quote here that you have. You said, it's funny how our brains know things, but at the same time, the brain ignores these facts. W- what did you mean when you said that? When you're undertaking an, a project like this, you have to ignore certain facts. You have to ignore a certain pain. You have to ignore the immensity of what you're undertaking. And you have to focus on what's important, which is in something like this, the moment to moment, the the daily, the mundane, um, just getting from one point to another point. So if your foot is hurting, if uh, your quads are killing you, you have to, I mean, your brain can ignore that. And that's just something that, that you overcome in order to say, I have to get to that next tree. 
over there. And sometimes you're literally, when you're doing your, the the ultra runs that you do, you are really just thinking about, I just got to get to the tree. I just got to get to the top of that hill. I just have to get to that small town. Right. Yeah. And, well, and, you know, depending on the, on the situation, you, that goal may be 100 yards away from you. It may be 10 miles away from you. Phil is someone who went from running marathons to running races that cover a distance of nine marathons. But what I love about Phil's story is the advice he has for others who are looking to push themselves further in any aspect of life, not just running. Because people get into a routine, they get into a bubble, I think. And they don't realize the possibilities that are out there. And even for me, ultra running was not something that I considered. You know, I was just, you know, reading magazines. So I was, you know, reading about mountain climbing. I was reading about kayaking. I was reading about cycling, snowboarding. And that's all. Oh, that's very nice. And then I read about long distance running. I thought, yeah, that's that's the one. That's something that, that so captured you know, your imagination. Yeah, you know, break out of the routine a little bit. Break out of the bubble. Getting out of a bubble and becoming uncomfortable is a common denominator that I found in all my guests this year. Matt Eisman is a comedian. He's a cancer survivor and TV personality. Someone very familiar with how it feels to be uncomfortable. After graduating from Princeton with honors and completing medical school at Columbia University, Matt's life took a dramatic 180-degree turn during a chaotic moment in the ICU. So I remember it was, it was January of 99, and to give it a little context, I go to medical school, graduate, come back to Colorado where I'm, I'm practicing medicine at the University of, or I'm doing residency, I'm doing my training at the University of Colorado where my dad's a professor. Christmas Day, we end up rounding together. So he's the attending physician. I'm his resident. And he couldn't have been. It's the greatest gift he probably ever could have gotten to have. He must have been in heaven. Following in his footsteps. Right. A month literally. later. A month. Literally. Right. Following in his footsteps. Having to answer his questions. And the month later, I'm in the intensive care unit. We're getting slammed. We just had six admissions. And I'm there with a second year student. And they're like, just figure out what this patient needs. And so I'm sitting there trying to make life or death decisions. And I know there's someone who's going to check my work, but I go, in six months, I'm going to be the person making these decisions. And it just hit me that I didn't feel, I didn't feel that I warranted that responsibility because I didn't feel committed enough. And I did, that was the moment where I just felt like this is not, this is not good for me. Like this was is not a, good for my like patients. A switch moment. It was, it was, a, it was just this moment of, of when I left the hospital that morning, I knew I couldn't go back. I couldn't continue. I couldn't keep doing it because it was just this feeling of either something was going to happen. Either I would break or, or, or someone You'd would be, break somebody I, or I'd break somebody, yeah. you know, yeah, either one. And, and it just kind of, it, it, it was, a, a, it was the guilt. It was this guilt of pretending, yeah. pretending to be something and, and pretending to love something that I didn't, didn't love. Going from having his entire life mapped out for him to starting over, Matt was forced to get out of his comfort zone. He did what every former doctor would do. He turned to stand up comedy and moved to Los Angeles. When you decided to make the move, what did your parents say? Go for it? So were they worried well, about it? Was the hardest, that was the hardest part, I think, was telling my dad because I really thought, I thought he was going to be crushed or, or, or at least disappointed. He never forced me into it. I think it was more a case of 
For me, I, and I didn't grow up with a passion to be a doctor. I think I kind of grew up in a house where achievement was always pushed. Just do your best right. at, at whatever it is. Try hard. And obviously, you know, I saw my dad coming home and I think he had tremendous job satisfaction as a doctor. And so it wasn't that he ever forced me. It was that he set such an example of I saw how passionate he was about his career and how people... Um, appreciated him. And I thought, this is something worthwhile. This is something worthy. This would be a great achievement. And this is perfect on paper to tell him like, I've made it. I've followed in your footsteps. And now I don't want this. I thought not only is it disappointing, it's also a little bit of a rejection of what he did. And so I wasn't sure it was, it took me about a month and a half to work up the courage to say, I'm, I'm going to take a year off and I'm going to go to LA and just give it a know. shot. Honestly, I thought I'll come out for a year. I'll have a fun time. Matt's leap of faith has certainly paid off. Matt successfully went on to do stand-up comedy and is now the host of NBC's American Ninja Warrior. But being a comedian and on-air personality has taken a lot of belief in himself, particularly during the times when he stared into the face of failure. Yeah, one of the things I, I, I say is nothing happens on the couch. Mm -hmm. Like so many people, I think, like you said, feel entitled or feel I'm so talented, people are gonna knock down my door. Right, and the, and the phone's is, gonna go and I'm gonna be- The phone's gonna go, people are gonna discover me and the reality is people who are just as talented or less talented are out there pounding down doors and going, you have to look at me, you, you know, and, and that's why I always tell people, my advice is say yes to everything. There's no project too small. There's no connection too small that you don't know that, that could pay off. And even just showing up someplace, showing up on a set, you might meet somebody. And you learn something. You learn, you, and you, you're you want out that there, in, you're around the, a connection, a that network. That inherent curiosity. I tell people luck is the residue of design. Yeah. It's a quote that I got from my father-in-law, but I love that. Luck is the residue of design. So I, I tell people, you put in the hard work, eventually it will all pay off. Half the time now I find myself saying, what's, what's your excuse? Yeah. What's your excuse for not pursuing your dream? What's your excuse for not going after something? Ditching the excuses is the key to realizing our full potential. Something award-winning documentary filmmaker, wildlife conservationist and explorer J.J. Kelly discovered early in life. As someone who is always focused on what he can do instead of what he can't, J.J. continued to dream up one crazy adventure after another. Life-changing journeys, like the time that he canoed 1,400 miles from Alaska to Seattle in a homemade kayak, and then once he biked 1,300 miles along the path of the Alaskan pipeline. Growing up on a farm, J.J. yearned to explore the world outside his small town, but Without an endless supply of money and resources, it forced him to get creative. Is that you kind of like to do it at a real grassroots level. You, you know, you build your own kayak and go get your own horse oats. Um, you're not just going to the adventure store and putting on the, uh, you know, oh, I need those adventure pants. You know the people I'm talking about, right? Yeah. I, you, you kind of like to do it at an organic level. What, what, it, do you think that's because of your background? And like you said, you had food stamps when you were a kid. Do you think it's... Yeah, the practicality yeah, of that, or yeah, I mean to fund. Basically, I'd saved two thousand dollars to do my first big trip to hike the Appalachian Trail. Yeah, and I had all this food available to me in the form of honey and the oats that were cheap, and yeah. the animals that we had on our farm. You know, that was all very accessible, and that wasn't going to cost me much money. So I yeah. decided I had time, I had resources, I didn't have money, so I could just make it. 
make it myself. I learned how to get honey from bees. We made our own maple syrup. We slaughter a lot of chickens. We take eggs from chickens. We had sheep. JJ epitomizes one of my favorite quotes from Sir Ernest Rutherford, a Kiwi scientist who was instrumental in splitting the atom and lacked adequate funding. He said, we didn't have money, so we had to think. I think that we're just so lucky to have this planet, to have these resources, and to have the diversity that we have around the world, whether it's from species to people. And why not do something through this small window of time that we call life that makes you happy? We think about all the different skills you have, JJ, right? Yeah, you work in a Chinese one. restaurant. You know all about oats. You know all about uh, killing uh, animals to make dried meat. And you have a lot of initiative. Yeah. Yeah, it was, was that part of your upbringing from being at home, your mom and dad? You know, you, you mentioned that you guys had it hard. I think that if you have to work for something and you have to problem solve on your own, you're just going to be set up a lot better for life. You know, yeah. even if you have kids and you have resources and you can give them the resources, I think to just to pull back and, and make them get that job and make them, you know, fight to get into college and, and don't give them everything because we all need to worry about something in life. And if you really don't have anything to worry about, you're going to worry about trivial things. To me, there is nothing more satisfying than working hard for something and then reaping the rewards. It gives you a different level of appreciation. As Winston Churchill famously said, we must never, never give up. Not really sure how good that accent is. But anyway, something that legendary American voice actor, the late Mel Blanc, definitely did understand. Mel is known as the man of a thousand voices, did all kinds of voices like Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, and the list just keeps going on and on. No one before him or since has been able to master so many voices. But as his son Noel Blank describes, this tenacious talent, he almost had to barge his way into the business. And he kept knocking on the doors of Warner Brothers because he knew he could, he was listening to the voices, he was looking at these cartoons in the theaters. He would see these old cartoons in the theater and said, my God, the voices are just terrible. And he tried to get into Warner Brothers. God, it and must he be so frustrating for him. Knocked on the door and the fellow says, hey, we got all the voices we want. And then I said, how can you have that? He says, because we have these people that are on a retainer because they sign contracts, they can do movies, then they can do radio, and they can do cartoons, and we just use them. He says, yeah, but I can do more. I said, I'm sorry. That happened for two years. Finally, that guy died, and a fellow by the name of Treg Brown took over, who was the editor and sound effects man. He said, my gosh, Mel, that was a great audition. And he took him upstairs during a Christmas party to meet the directors at Warner's Cartoons. And from that day on, he started to do every cartoon voice that you knew from Warner Brothers. Mel didn't let rejection halt him from pursuing his passion, much like radio personality Zane Lowe, who had a moment in his career where he had this feeling of rejection and failure, and it really almost knocked the confidence completely out of him, almost stopped him from going forward in the business. But he just kept on going. I want to know what happened when you interviewed the Beastie Boys because terrible. That was a big life les lesson for you. you it said. was a big life lesson for me because I had prepared for days to do it. It was sort of my absolute moment. Like this is the peak of the mountain for me right mm. now in my life. And they were and remain to this day the most influential artistic group of my life. Um, they influenced me in ways that go beyond music. You know, um, I would read everything that they said. I would look at everything that they told me to look at. I would buy anything that, or try to that they thought was cool. 
I even almost thought golf was cool at one point because they were into it. So, you know, and now I've realized in old age that golf is very cool. Just very hard to play. Very hard to play. <laughs> I don't play it, but it's very cool. It's but, but as a kid, I was like, golf? Man, Beastie Boys are really pushing it this time, but I'll have a crack at this, right? So that, that's the level, the degree of dedication that I had for the band. And then I had an opportunity to interview them. They're coming in on, on, the, on the ill communication tour. And, um, and I thought I was prepared. And uh, the lesson I learned was you can totally over-prepare. You know, you can't control the situation. You can't control your subject. And you've got to be really malleable and, and willing to be able to move w with them in whatever mood they're in. I had a pretty good run up until then. And uh, they just weren't into it. Yeah. They weren't into what I considered to you be. You had an agenda. And they weren't into it. Right. They were not into it. They just were into their own thing. And, you know, I, I look back on it now. What, what did I expect? I mean, what we loved about the Beasties was that they were the gang we all wanted to be in. They were the club we all wanted to be in. Mm. And I thought that if I asked the right questions, I might get temporary entry. And it was just no way. Do you like, feel like maybe you were trying to prove to them that you were a big fan course, and that you were you knew course. everything? I mean, that is like one of the biggest traps for young players in, in the interview game. Yeah. As you go in there thinking, I'm going to wow you with science, you know? And they're like, why are you telling us our history? We already know it. Yeah. We, uh, what are you trying telling, to get in my head now? You already, and, well, no, because you already, you're telling me <clears> things I already know. I was there. Like, yeah. you'd like, I get it that you have read the book or you read the article or you've listened to the album. That's awesome. Give me something new. And I didn't have anything. And I was so devastated. And uh, and I did it. Did it take the steam out of you to a point where you thought, "Man, this is not the business for me"? Or did, did no, you just sort of want to dig I, in? It was worse than that to some degree. I, t I asked my boss at the time to not play it, and he agreed because I was really serious. So it never upset. went to air. Never went to air. But I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. You. It's not about me. It's right. about them. People aren't tuning in to see me win. Mm. They're tuning in to see the Beastie Boys, and I have to be a conduit for that. And if they decide that I'm going to be the one that they, and it was always lovingly, yeah. mock or have fun with or play with, that's what they are. Yeah. You know, if I talked to them afterwards and said, why were you like that? They would have gone like, what? This is what we do. Yeah. They weren't doing anything that wasn't natural to them as a group. And anything that I didn't love about them as a group, it's just I was on the receiving end and I thought for a minute that they were going to appreciate me. And they did, but just in their own way. And as I got older, I learned to move with the Beastie Boys at their own pace. And now Mike Deezer, I mean, I can honestly say Mike is, is a friend of mine and I'm blows my mind to even say that, but it's also the power of like, you know, when you think it and you put it out there, you bring it to yourself, right? Maybe that was meant to happen, you know? Maybe I have <clears> no doubt. Maybe that was part of your journey. I have no doubt because we're talking about it. And if mm. we're talking about it, then it's stuck. And it's a lesson that's stuck. And it's something that I don't mind telling because I feel like if you're in a situation where you want to be curious and you want to be part of a conversation, then you must, to the best of your, of your ability, check your ego at the door because you are a vessel of information. Yeah, I, I've, I've seen that quote from you where you said you're a conduit between the artist and the fan. 100%. And, there is no conversation that I can lead that if it's not of value to the artist or the fan, then I should be having it privately. Right. I like being uncomfortable enough. Mm. I like to get to a situation where it's uncomfortable enough. Mm. But I am, I always come from a place... And I get a little bit of slack for this, but I always come from a place of empathy for the artist because I am, as you asked at the very beginning, and remain a fan. Yeah. And I can't not be that. If I'm not a fan entirely, I start to become a critic. And critics can be fans, but they've also got to be critics. And I've never been very good at being a critic. Since this experience, Zane went on to host BBC's Radio 1 for nearly 13 years. And he's always remained a fan at heart. Zane had some really good advice for those who are finding their place in the industry. He says, you gotta really stay true to yourself. Keep your identity. Because, you know, pick a corner of the room and it doesn't matter if it's the most popular corner or not, just pick a corner in the room 
and understand it, love it, appreciate it, dedicate yourself to it, and uh, wait for people to come to it. Yeah, and they have. You know, and that's it. And and it, it may not be the corner every time, but it will it will have its time. And you you know that's the truth for anything. I mean, how many great stories, great artists, great musicians, great films, great moments that happened decades ago that people discover and say, "Oh my God, the undiscovered gem. genius." Zane is now living with his family in L.A., where he's the creative director and on-air host at Apple Music's Beat One. His reputation as the most influential and respected voices in music on the radio continues to grow. There is perhaps no more influential music than that of the legendary musician Bob Marley. His reggae music has the ability to transcend any culture, any language barrier. And having traveled to more than 130 countries around the world, I have witnessed this firsthand. I had the pleasure of talking to Roger Steffens, who has the world's most extensive collection of Marley reggae memorabilia that I have ever seen. It is perhaps the biggest in the world, and his knowledge of the history of reggae is truly, truly outstanding. He even toured with Bob Marley and the Whalers back in the 70s. Tragically, Marley's life ended at just 36 years old, but his message of love and peace continues to live on. Roger, what are some things about Bob Marley that would surprise people that they wouldn't know. He never had a home of his own. He probably bought three dozen homes for band members, baby mothers, relatives, his mother. Um, he gave away almost all his money. Um, he lived for other people. And he he knew that he was living for other people. He talked about it. If 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 I can't help other people, then my my life is meaningless. And he wanted everybody to know ultimately where he had come in his own philosophy. The two great militant masterpieces of his life are his first solo album, um, Natty Dread, um, which is about confrontations with the military and sheriffs and um, basically, uh, I feel like bombing a church, he sang, now that I know the preacher is lying. Who's going to stay at home when the freedom fighters are fighting? But after he was shot, he went through a transformation. And as I said in the Netflix documentary, he comes back home and he brings the warring factions together. And that's when he went from showman to shaman. And the next militant album, maybe his greatest album of all time, was Survival in 79, with the anthem that became a beacon for the freedom fighters in Rhodesia called Zimbabwe. And he realized by that time that an eye for an eye just makes everybody blind, that if we're going to change the world, we have to change ourselves first. This philosophy and passion for changing the world, starting with ourselves, is shared by Kit Carson, former pro cyclist and proud member of the LGTBQ community, who understands what it feels like to be different and discriminated against, and to have others try to decide your rights for you. I love what Kit says about creating change. We as a people, until that day comes where everyone is truly equal, we cannot wait for few folks in a tiny building on the east coast to Figure tell out. us how we should love and yeah. love one another it's our job to create and provoke that environment for one another i love this quote you say 
in these turbulent times where everything seems broken, you identified three types of people. Those who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and those who ask what happened. You can, you can, you can really just choose. That's one of the few choices you have in this world is your level of participation. I can be a bigot and I can be racist and I can be misogynistic and I can be transphobic and it's, it's just not right. You're better than that. We all are, you know, and it's, uh, it just takes a little courage and, you know, swallowing some pride to understand that, yeah, there's actually people who are not like you that also live here that also don't look like you, that also don't love the same way that you do, that also don't feel the same way that you do. Like, that's what's so magical and special about this country and what's so magical and special about, you know, this community is you get to explore and see and experience and feel these different levels of, of you know, consciousness. And, and I, can, I plead for people to continue to explore that in whatever way they feel most comfortable. Do you think um, the world would be a better place when you're 50? You know, I, I, I don't know, but I can tell you that I will do everything within my power to try and do that. Yeah. You know, I, I stopped trying a long time ago to control everyone else because you can't. It's impossible. But I can control my actions and I can control the way that I interact with people in and out of the LGBT community. One of my favorite uh, Teddy Roosevelt quotes is, do what you can uh, with what you have where you are. That's and good. It was good. That's a good wake, waking up every single day trying to change the world, that's impossible and you'll, you'll never feel happy. But if you try and just take micro bites and do everything bit by bit, just keep tacking up. One pedal strike at a time. Yeah, one pedal strike, you know, push the pedals faster, get a bigger gear. Just keep doing that over and over Just and over keep again. Going. Yeah, that's all you can do. Wise words from a very young man. I want to wrap up with some more words of wisdom, this time from my father. And believe me, he's got a lot of words to share. Well, he instilled this with me at a very young age. He said, no matter what your profession, whatever your passion, the color of your skin, or where you were born, we're all humans. We're all made of the same atoms, and we're all connected through our humanity. Respect others, and they will inevitably respect you. I think the, the best advice is to be yourself, to treat everyone the way you would like to be treated, not to have sides when it comes to uh, treating people and judging people. Mm. Be open-minded. I think the sort of qualities that your mum brought you up with more than anything else. Yeah, mum would always say... Always try to find the, the good in people. Yes, I think you... And mom, I remember that. Yeah, your mum was unique in, in never having sides, bias sides, always treating people equally and judging from a, uh, an equal basis. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the best of the 2018 Bucket with Phil Kogan podcast. I've been lucky enough to talk to some incredible guests, and I've got some more amazing guests lined up for 2019. Life is this precious gift, and my goal is to inspire you to reach your full potential. Swerve off the predictable road, test your limits, and then maybe face a few fears. As we roll into 2019, 
why don't you take a little time to write down your life list? And then you can go about ticking it before you kick it. Ask yourself what you would do if you only had 24 hours to live. A good way to zero in on what's really important to you. Just think about that. It's something that I ask all my guests. And here are some of the highlights. I would book a flight to the place that has presently the biggest waves on earth. And I would go and stroke into and aim to succeed at riding the biggest wave I've ever ridden in my life. No. I'd probably go outside on a field by myself and just think and, and, and feel and experience the, the universe around me. I would have a party with everyone that I could round up in 24 hours. Just be with my family, be with my friends. And then maybe, maybe go break a couple of rules. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be cool to be able to have your, have your memorial service before you're gone, where you get to hear... What people uh, have to say. Yeah, it, it's very selfish, but at the same time, it's like, I often wonder, you, we throw a lot of pebbles in the pond, and we don't know how far those ripples go, and those ripples may be long, beyond, long past where, where we are, so having my students and patients and family and friends come and be able to share that. I wouldn't accept that I was going to take my last breath tomorrow. It's exactly the scenario. I would say, right, what can I do to avoid that being my last breath? I'd probably get a lot of kids in, an, in a stadium and I would tell them a story about mm -hmm. not giving up and believing in yourself. I do that every day. You yep. live it every day. You know, you just try to be authentic in every moment. Ooh, listening to Bob Marley, looking at beautiful photographs, watching the sunset and homing it down with my wife. Maybe a joint? Oh, it goes without saying. <laughs> That's understood. Okay. You just take that as you're, you're given. <laughs> I just get it, gather everyone around. Tell them I love them. You know I love you. Love you too. You can watch this podcast online at philcogan.com. And let me know what's on your bucket list. You never know. You might be my next guest. Don't forget, ticket before you kick it. <laughs>